All right, well, welcome to the workshop on anxiety entitled When Panic Attacks Me. And um, what I'm going to teach you today is really things that I have learned and am learning as I continue to battle uh, anxiety as far as as long as I can remember. It's something that has been uh, a struggle for me and uh, it didn't magically go away when I got saved. Um, But God has been teaching me more and more every day how to do battle with this enemy and um, how to grow in my relationship with the Lord as a result of it, to see it as something that God uses um, uh, in my life and uh, is enabling me to also then be able to counsel others more effectively. I want to begin uh, this afternoon just by thinking about few preliminary reminders, okay? And that is that biblical counseling affirms that the human body and spirit have impact upon one another. In other words, we are embodied spirits. We are both body and soul, and we always will be, okay? Um, God made us that way. He, He created Adam, and then he breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a what? A living soul, okay? So we are both body and soul. And why that is so important for us to remember in this situation and really in dealing with any emotion is to realize you can't separate the two. Okay, the body impacts the soul. The soul impacts the body. Um, for example, uh, if you're sitting in the hospital um, feeling really, really lousy uh, because physically you are feeling really lousy, right? Your body is just in a mess and that affects your soul. It affects your inner person. Uh, Same is is true in the opposite direction. If our soul is very disturbed, if our spirit is very much at an unrest about something in our lives, it can have physical uh, consequences. We have a number of examples of this in in the scriptures. For example, distress, grief, weariness of soul, loss of strength and physical deterioration may result from spiritual problems. And we find these in the scriptures. For example, in Psalm 31, uh, if you'll go ahead and turn there, just just a couple examples of this that will be uh, helpful to us. Psalm 31 and verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones wasted away. Do you see the interchange in that scripture between body and soul? There's, there's a, a correlation between the two. One has an effect upon the other. We see this in Psalm 38 as well. When David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me and the light of my eyes it also has gone from me. So you see the, the relationship here between the body and the soul and how spiritual struggles do have an impact upon the physical. <clears throat> Another example for us to consider is that an unrepentant heart may cause physical problems. Key word <clears throat> in that statement is may, okay? may cause physical problems. Not always, okay? In other words, you can't always work backwards from a physical problem to a sin cause. Okay, remember that's John 9. 
And when, when the disciples wanted to know who sinned, this man who was born blind or his parents, and Jesus said, neither one of them sinned, but God, God planned this so that he would bring more glory to himself. But uh, the reality is that sometimes there is a correlation between personal sin and personal suffering, okay? There's always a generic connection between sin and suffering because there was no suffering prior to Genesis 3, okay? So, so in a generic way, we do, we do look at suffering in our lives and we say it's all the result of the fall, okay? We understand that. But we as biblical counselors have to be very careful we don't then take that and apply it to every personal situation in people's lives or even in our own lives, uh, that is, that not every aspect of our suffering or the suffering of the people that we counsel is connected to personal sin, okay? Sometimes it is, and that's why the word may is there. And Psalm 32 is that example. Most commentators believe that Psalm 32 is <clears throat> a description of David prior to Psalm 51, in other words, Psalm 51 is his confession uh, before God of his guilt, of his sin after Nathan the prophet confronted him. Psalm 32 is a description of that what commentators believe is a year between his sin and the, and the repentance of his sin. That this psalm describes what, what was going on in his life. He, just, he begins the psalm by saying how blessed it is to be forgiven. But then he goes on to say, it wasn't always that way. I didn't always feel that way. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So in David's case, an unrepentant heart caused physical problems. His, his body was feeling like it was, was being wasted away. There was, a, there was a heavy hand upon me. He, he says, all my strength was dried up. But then he goes on to say, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't cover my sin anymore. I confessed it. And, and that is what then leads to this statement at the beginning of the psalm, how blessed it is to be forgiven. He then goes on to instruct us to not be like he was. Don't, don't be as stubborn as a mule, he says in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. So, so don't be stubborn like I was for that year when I refused to acknowledge my sin and I paid the consequences for it in my, in my body, in my spirit, in my, every part of me. So there is a connection again there between the body and the soul. And then anxiety may cause mental and physical stress. This is uh, Proverbs 12 and 25. Does anybody have that handy? You want to just read it? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Okay, anxiety in the heart weighs him down. Now, sometimes we are under a lot of stress because we are anxious. Yes, it is the factors that are applying pressure upon us, circumstantial things, changes, pressures, financial pressures, relational pressures, conflict, perhaps um, unexpected changes in our lives, you know, because God's plan is never according to ours, right? Thankfully. Um, so we have all those factors that are pressing in upon us and, and we say creating stress in our lives. But actually what creates the stress is usually our anxious response to those circumstances. Okay? As Heath was talking about, many times we can sin in our response to our suffering. So it wasn't the sin that brought about the suffering, but the suffering that in a sense brings about the sin because of our sinful response to it. Um, and so we need to understand that anxiety uh, may be at the root of mental and physical stress uh, in our lives, and we need to, to examine that and see uh, what are we anxious about, what are we worrying about. 
So wrapping it all up together into this principle, I think we need to understand this. It'll help us to keep things, I think, balanced as, as biblical counselors. Some things are physical, but all things are spiritual. It's a simple statement. Some things are physical, but all things are, are spiritual. That is, regardless of whether the body is a contributor to anxiety, and there's a lot of debate about that, Every emotional struggle includes a spiritual element. The embodied spirit is always in need of some form of counseling that is a ministry of grace and truth. Okay, So this is where we keep the balance uh, between uh, as far as the role of medicine in biblical counseling. Sometimes biblical counselors are accused of having no regard at all for, for the, the medical disciplines, and that is not the case at all. We are so thankful for the medical doctors. Every one of us in this room is incredibly thankful for the medical disciplines that we have uh, in our lives. Um, we are embodied spirits, and this body of ours is, is in a process of decay, whether or not we realize that. That is what's going on, and it needs care. Sometimes the physical deterioration of our bodies results in these other problems in our lives. Not always, but sometimes. And that's where we appreciate medical intervention. Okay? So some things are physical. Sometimes there is a physical organic cause uh, behind the struggles that the people uh, face that we, that we counsel or, or our own struggles. So some things are physical, but all things are spiritual. In other words, regardless of whether or not there is a physical element involved in a person's struggle, there is always the need, and there will always be the need, for our souls to receive the ministry of the Word of God. We will always need the ministry of grace and truth. And so um, many times I have counselees who come to me and they, they describe a pretty elaborate uh, array of difficulties. And the, one of the first assignments they have is to go to their primary physician and have a complete physical, including blood workup, full blood workup. Why? Because we want to know, is there something going on in their lives, in their body, that is contributing to their, their current situation? Uh, in my previous church, we had several women who had to have their thyroid, thyroids removed. Um, there, were, there were things going on in their lives they couldn't, they couldn't figure out, they couldn't make sense of. They went to the doctor, they discovered something seriously wrong with the thyroid. So that's just one example of how the physical can contribute to the emotional uh, struggles that we sometimes face. So sometimes there is a physical connection, but regardless, there is always the need for us to be speaking the truth in love to one another, bringing the scriptures to bear upon the needs of our soul. All right? Let's think a little bit more about anxiety itself then. Let's look at um, some of the biblical words that are used so that will help us to understand what anxiety is. Um, before we get to that, <clears throat> we need to understand that the battle with anxiety is part of our fallen sinful condition, which every one of us faces to one degree or another. It's estimated that 23 million Americans suffer from panic attacks. That's a lot of people. Therefore, it is helpful and encouraging to realize that the Bible honestly addresses this aspect of our fallen human condition, including its negative effects on the human body, mind, and spirit, which is something we already touched on. But the, the, the main word in its noun form in the New Testament is marimna, which is in different directions, okay? So to be anxious is to be being pulled apart, okay? You are being pulled apart in two different directions. You are distracted. 
all right? You are being drawn away in two different directions. Um, on, on one hand, you, you want to trust the Lord in this. On another hand, you're looking at things horizontally in your lives and you're, and you're, you're getting nervous, you're getting anxious. You're, and so there is this distraction that is going on. These, it's called care. Many legitimate cares, which uh, we'll touch on later. Uh, but, but Jesus, in instructing his disciples, he, he often said, don't worry about the cares. So there are cares, which are legitimate concerns to us. But he took it a step farther and saying, don't worry about those. Don't, don't become distracted by them. Don't become anxious about them. Why? Because your heavenly father already knows everything that you need, and he will take care of your needs. The verb form means to be anxious. To be anxious, that is to have a distracting care. Okay? So the care is, is that which distracts us. The, the process of anxiety is being caught in that trap of being anxious, being distracted, being pulled, feeling like you're being pulled in two separate directions. So we come to a few biblical conclusions concerning anxiety. First, that, that fear is often rooted in unbelief. Okay, anxiety is a form of fear. I mean, let's be honest. That's what anxiety is. It is fear. Um, there's so much being written about anxiety nowadays uh, from the secular viewpoint, also from the Christian viewpoint. Some of it's helpful, not all of it's helpful, um, but, but it's the, the quote-unquote disorder, anxiety disorders, uh, are what we hear about the most. And, you know, the word disorder, it's, it's a perfectly good word. I mean, it just describes the fact that when God created the world, everything was good and orderly, and after the fall, everything has become disorderly. Okay, so it is a good word in the sense that if we understand it biblically, okay, sin and the fall of man has really done a good job of making this world disorderly. My concern is that we're, we're taking every single, <laughs> almost every single common problem, and we're turning it into something that is its Instead of saying, this is part of what it means to be human and living in a fallen world, and let's look at what God's word has to say about it, and, and so let's walk by faith through this world with God's help. Instead, we're categorizing everything. We're just determined to put every little struggle we have in its own little disorder box. And then to, and then to be able to medicate it. All right? Um, I'm not against legitimate proper use of medication, so don't draw that conclusion. But we are, even, even secular people are saying, we are an over-medicated society. So when the unbelieving world is even seeing uh, that there's a problem, uh, that, that usually is a pretty good indicator that uh, uh, something is seriously wrong. But when I struggle with anxiety, let's just be honest, when I am overtaken with anxiety, I, at that moment, have to realize that I'm very afraid. And so I have to ask myself, what am I afraid of? You know, Paul, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen? You know, if A doesn't happen, because you know you want A to happen, because then it will lead to B, which will then lead to C. So if A doesn't happen, then what? You know, a good thing. But then what if A happens, a bad thing? I mean, what if that happens? Then what? You know? So we're always, we're always playing this what-if game. We used to tease my mom about this when we were kids because uh, she was always saying, what if, what if, what if? Or I should have, I should have, I should have. We'd go to the restaurant and she'd order something off the menu. And then the whole meal while she's eating, oh, I should have ordered that instead. Oh, I should have ordered that. I should have ordered that. If I would have known this was going to look like this, I should have ordered that, you know. There's always this, this game of what if and should have, uh, which is rooted in fear. And we need to understand that our fears are rooted in unbelief. Because what's the opposite of fear? 
faith, right? I mean, what is the solution to fear is faith. Paul said in Romans, whatever is not of faith is sin. Okay, so, so whether, it's, whether it's a little bit of anxiety or we, or we are just in a state of panic, at that moment we have to stop and say and ask ourselves, okay, what are you afraid of? And I'm not saying that's an easy question to answer. There are many times I can't answer it, at least right away. And I might even have to say to my wife, you know, she'll say, well, what's bothering you? And a typical husband says, well, nothing's bothering me. You know, well, um, I've learned over the years to, that's not the best answer, that, that I should say instead, I'm not quite sure. You know, maybe give me some time, let me process this. I've never been one who's been able to immediately process stuff and to know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Um, but there's usually some form of fear that is rooted in unbelief. Why do I say it's rooted in unbelief? Well, it's rooted in unbelief because it's rooted in a false conclusion about God or lack of faith in God. Just for example, the Matthew 6 um, example there where, where Jesus says, look at, look at the birds, you know, look at the flowers. Um, doesn't your heavenly Father care for you more than them? There's a fear of a lack of God's provision that's rooted in an unbelief concerning the faithfulness of God to provide for us. So when we're anxious about our food and clothing, Jesus says, deal with the unbelief that is at the root of your fear by reminding yourself that your heavenly Father loves you more than you can imagine. And he's going to take way better care of you than he takes even care of the birds and the flowers. All right? Also, anxiety is often the result of wrong or false thinking patterns. In biblical counseling, I don't know how far along you are in your training and in all of that, but... Um, you probably are familiar with Philippians 4 and verse 8 because it is a scripture that we use a lot uh, in biblical counseling, teaching, teaching us how to think rightly. Um, but we usually pull it right out of context, and so it's good for us to go back and to uh, realize that Paul here in the context is dealing with the problem of anxiety and he says do not be anxious about anything in verse 6 but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God okay so there's the command is do not be anxious about anything don't don't be pulled in two separate directions about anything in other words take uh, and instead, take everything to God in prayer. He's saying, you, you need to pray about everything. Everything in your life is something to be prayed for. And, and this is, the, this is the, one of the beautiful things about resisting the cultural pressure to just say, well, I have an anxiety disorder and I always will. Instead of saying that, I think we should say, anxiety is one of the struggles we have living in a fallen world and fallen bodies. And it's a disorder to our lives. It's disorderly in our lives. But it's there to drive us to prayer. It's there to drive us to the Lord that we might grow. See, too many times we just want to get rid of these emotional struggles instead of realizing, no, they're there, they're a part of our lives to make us more like Christ. So pray, the apostle says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the promise comes, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
The word guard there is a military word. It means to stand as a sentry at the door of your heart. A garrison, in other words, when we are anxious and instead of being just trapped in a state of panic, we stop ourselves and we say, what are you afraid of? Now take your fears to God in prayer. God answers through the prayer by, by surrounding our hearts with a garrison of soldiers called peace. And the picture that the apostle paints here is that this peace of God then will keep the anxiety out of our hearts. They'll say, nope, there's a door here. You can't come in here anymore. And in our minds. Finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he's telling us this is how you should think. In verse 7, he's saying as a result of prayer, your mind, the way you think, will be governed and protected by the peace of God, and all of this is in response to anxiety. Does that make sense? So when we're anxious about things, not only is it an issue of unbelief, an an aspect whereby we are allowing fear to control us instead of faith, but oftentimes it's the result of wrong thinking patterns. Ways we have trained ourselves to think uh, our whole lives. And and we we all have these, right? And we're not even aware of all of the thinking patterns that we have. But the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the more the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to expose to us the wrong ways that we think. All right? And one of the challenges in biblical counseling is to always be working backwards from the problem to the heart need behind the problem. Okay, so we see the problem of anxiety, problem of panic, and we work backwards and we say, okay, what is causing the anxiety and, and therefore what at that level needs to change? So if it's an issue of fear, then there's an unbelief factor that needs to be addressed. There's something about God that we are not believing rightly. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 6. You're anxious because you are not trusting God that he is the Heavenly Father who loves you and will take care of you. See how he worked backwards from the anxiety to their false view of God. All right? And then these thinking patterns that we have uh, developed in our lives. What are some common factors in anxiety and depression. Well, let's turn to Matthew 6 for this because uh, it's really important for us to see how uh, beautifully the Lord Jesus helped his disciples and therefore helps us. And Matthew 6 is one of the classic passages of Scripture dealing with the subject of anxiety. Numerous times the Lord Jesus says, Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Fear not. Uh, These admonitions, the admonitions come from the Savior to his disciples. And so he, he begins in verse 19 by talking about their priorities. In other words, they need to have eternal priorities, not worldly priorities not laying up for themselves a treasure on earth, but laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. If you've got two masters, you're going to be pulled in two different directions, right? And what is being pulled in two different directions called? Anxiety, all right? So um, then he moves into this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So these are, we're calling these false cares. Why? Is, is, is drink and, and clothing and, 
and food to eat, are those legitimate cares? Yes, they are legitimate cares. But they're false cares in this context because they've been elevated to a place of of, um, basically idolatry because you're so worried that God's not going to take care of you that these things are taking over your life. So it's a false care in this sense. It's a false care to become so anxious over those things because God promised already to take care of them. Does that make sense? There's also a lack of faith that is so often um, connected to our anxiety. He says in verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, anxiety is a faith issue. And that's why we do people a disservice by simply saying um, that, that it's a disorder. You can't help it. It's, it's in your genes. When we take anxiety out of the realm of sin and unbelief and lack of faith, we are actually doing people a disservice. We might make them feel better for a little while, but eventually they're still, they're, they're not going to have any victory over it because they're not going to get to the root cause, the root issues in their lives. Worldly values. We already touched on this, uh, but he says it again in, in 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Many times Gentiles in the New Testament is used as a broad description of unbelievers. So Jesus is saying, the, the unbelievers are seeking after all of these things, but, but you should know that your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in place of worldly values, worldly priorities, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. At Matthew 6.33, that's one of those I like to call the, uh, these umbrella principles that, that are in our Christian lives. It so much falls underneath this umbrella. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. Uh, I use that principle when I'm teaching um, single young people who are, who are longing to be married. And they're worried. They're worried. You know, maybe they're mid-20s and they're worried uh, will, will they ever find someone? Will they ever get married? Uh, they're worried, will Jesus come back before I get married? You know, I mean, they, they're to the point where they want marriage more than they want Jesus to come again. Um, and, and I take them to Matthew 6.33, and I say, you know, Matthew 6.33 needs to be the umbrella over your whole life. Seek first God. Seek first his priorities. Seek first his will. Pursue Christ with all of your heart and be, be the person that God wants you to be. And then underneath that umbrella will fall all these things that you're worried about. See, when we get that one thing straight, all these other things take care of themselves. That's what Jesus is saying. Another common factor is relational conflict. Uh, relational conflict. Psalm 13, uh, Heath mentioned it um, in his first session this morning, but Psalm 13 is one of those we may call raw, raw psalms. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we are, as believers, we're, we're drawn so much to the book of Psalms because it is real. Uh, there, there's nothing hidden. The, the writers are just out there with the rawness of their emotions and their fears and their struggles. And, and he's, he's asking, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And you read through that psalm and many other uh, psalms that have that element of conflict in them, and you can feel the anxiety it just oozes out of those psalms. And you realize, if you have ever been involved 
in a very, very bitter relational conflict or an ongoing relational conflict, you know the anxiety that comes from that, the sleepless nights. Uh, This is one of the realities of life. And, um, you know, in obedience to God and application of the gospel, you and I are to do everything in our power, according to Romans 12, to resolve those conflicts. The problem is that some of the people that you and I have conflicts with are not willing to be resolved. They don't want to be reconciled. And so uh, there's often that deep level of anxiety that's a part of that. Also, anger against God is many times a factor in anxiety or depression. And you notice in some of my notes, I'm putting the two together, anxiety and depression, which um, because the, the more you are involved in counseling people, the more you're going to see that those two are often together, anxiety and depression. And if you know anything about the psychotropic meds that are used for anxiety and depression, they, they'll use the same meds for both of those struggles. Okay? So even, even the, the, the medical world sees so much similarity between these two difficulties. But I think in, in anger against God, Genesis 4 is an example of this. And in Cain, many people turn to Genesis 4 for a description of depression. And I think it's there, but I think more than depression is anger against God. Cain responds in anger against God. Why? Because God accepted his brother's offering, but he rejected his. And the scripture says that his countenance changed. Cain's countenance changed. You, you can even, you can just imagine in your mind an angry look that takes hold of him and then takes him down into depression. Sometimes anger begins the cycle of depression. Um, and, and I think that as believers, there are times in which we may be angry at God and be unaware of it. Uh, this happened to me about, oh, about five years ago or so, going through just a, um, a multitude of different trials all converging at the same point, And I was not responding to those trials in a Christ-like way. And I remember driving from, from our home. It was a 13-mile drive, and just in the, on the highway and cornfields on both sides, and all of a sudden, the thought just hit me, Paul, you're angry at God. And I thought, what? <laughs> I've never been angry at God. But then... But then the Holy Spirit helped me with my thinking and helped me realize you are angry at those circumstances and you're angry at those people who are a part of creating some of the elements of this whole, uh, these circumstances. And so what you, what you are also then, who you are also angry at is the God who you believe is sovereign over all of that. See, when suffering, no matter what the cause, when suffering comes into our lives and we respond to that suffering in a sinful way, we are in a sense saying, though we wouldn't say it with our mouths, we're saying with our actions, we're saying with our heart, God, I don't like what you just did. I do not like this. You're supposed to be good, and you're letting this happen? We're questioning the sovereignty of God is what we're doing, and we're reacting to the sovereignty of God in a sinful way. God's sovereignty is an anchor, right? It's an anchor for our faith. But it's only an anchor to our faith if we submit to it that God's sovereignty is not beneath our sovereignty. 
God's sovereignty is over all, which means we are called to submit to whatever his sovereignty puts into our lives. Is that Job, it's that Job's response, you know. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. How can I, how can I accept good things from God and, and not allow him to take them away, you know. That that sovereignty aspect is so important. Yes. Is there a difference between what you just explained? I think so. Yes. Yeah, because there's an honest there's an honest reality to the pain of our suffering and not liking the situation and even hating the situation. Um but when it becomes residual, when it, when it kind of begins to take a root in our hearts and colors our mood like it did for me, and I lost my joy for a period of time, so much so that people could see it, and they would say, well, you, something's wrong, you, are, you have lost your joy. At that point, as I'm navigating through that, I had a wise friend who, who said to me, Paul, said, you are right now, I understand all that's going on and I understand how it has affected you and I understand why you've lost your joy. But if you continue in this, then what you are really saying is you are rebelling against God who put these things in your life. So I think the answer to that is, how long does that go on? And does it take control of you? Is there an honest hatred of the things that come into our lives? Yes. But how, how soon then do we turn from that to submissive faith in the God who sovereignly placed those things in our lives? But if we allow it to take root and it colors our mood and it colors how we view people and it even leads to bitterness... Um, then we know we've crossed the line. Does that help? Okay. Then spiritual warfare is a factor in anxiety, which I think is something we don't think about as believers. You know, when I got saved in the um, mid-'80s, early to mid-'80s, there was then, within a few years, all of these spiritual warfare fiction books that were being written, and they were like the bestsellers, and everyone was talking about spiritual warfare and stuff. And, and I've, I've just seen in the, in the 33 um, years now that I've been a believer, I just keep seeing this pendulum swinging back and forth, back and forth in regard to spiritual warfare. There's, there's a renewed understanding of Satan and his demons and their work in this world. And so then there is this big swing to seeing a demon behind everything, you know, and, 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 and referring even to our sinful struggles as a demon, like the demon of lust or the demon of this, instead of taking full personal responsibility for our sin. But the pendulum also swings the other way to the point where, where we don't honestly acknowledge what the scriptures say about Satan and his work. Satan hates the guts of every believer in Jesus Christ. He hates us because he hates the one whom we love. And he is opposing us. And, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, we have a connection between anxiety and spiritual warfare, and I think it's something we often miss. So there are times in which Satan may be opposing us in very serious ways, and even as he did in Job's case, being a part of creating, quote-unquote, creating with a lowercase c, creating under the sovereignty of God circumstances which, which are meant to harm us and destroy us which then um, involves uh, anxiety or cares. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, 
context here is pride. He's telling younger, uh, younger people in the church to, to submit themselves to their elders in humility because God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Then he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, so give your cares to God. Why? Because God cares for you. That's that, that's that unbelief connection again. Okay, what are we thinking about God? But then notice how he goes on in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your what? Faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. These believers in 1 Peter, the theme of 1 Peter is suffering. And so these believers were suffering a great deal of persecution, and anxiety was one of the results of the suffering that they were experiencing. And the suffering was part of what the devil was doing in their lives. And, and so sometimes there's a spiritual warfare element to those, that battle that we have with anxiety, and we need to stand firm in our faith. But physical disease also can sometimes be uh, a factor in anxiety. There are, uh, there are some medical conditions which result in anxiety, okay? Um, fear. Uh, things, um, if, if you've ever had an, an elderly parent who moves in the direction of dementia, there are some of those dementia-related diseases that uh, result in intense fear, almost going back into childhood, and the, the, the childhood fears that, that you and I had growing up when we'd run into our parents' bedroom in the middle of the night. Um, but um, I, I would encourage you to get a book that's out in the bookstore. Uh, I saw about six copies of it called Good Mood, Bad Mood by Charles Hodges. Um, uh, Charlie Hodge is, um, is a uh, primary physician, medical doctor his whole life. He's also uh, firmly committed to biblical counseling. And he really does a good job in that book about depression, um, bipolar, um, things like that. And uh, his, his appendix called Diseases That Affect Mood uh, is really helpful in this regard. I encourage you to consider that. All right, well, let me wrap it up then by, by giving you um, some ongoing disciplines. I'm just checking the time here. We have, what, about seven more minutes? Is that right? Um, seven disciplines for working through anxiety. And actually, as I say the word seven, I'm thinking there are eight. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just run through these rather quickly, okay? I've, I've, I've developed these more fully on my blog. Um, some of you... Um, may be aware of my blog. I know Lou reads it all the time, um, counselingoneanother.com. It's something I started about six years ago. I post a couple times a week on the average. Um, but just put your email in there and subscribe to it. When I do post something, it'll, it'll pop into your inbox. But there are thousands of posts on there, um, articles that will help you in your own walk with the Lord, but also help you in counseling others, and everything's categorized by topic. So you can just punch on anxiety or depression, and it'll pull up uh, all kinds of different stuff. So I've developed these disciplines more on my blog. So let me just run through them and tell you what, what I mean by the word, okay? First, recite. What I mean by recite is, is consciously bring to the forefront of your mind Scripture, Scriptural truths, okay, about God. So, so when I am being overtaken by panic, anxiety, 
I want to go to something like Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. We want to be safe, right? When we are overtaken by panic, we're looking for safety. The name of the Lord is a safe place. Or Isaiah 43.2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the river, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Beautiful passage, Isaiah 43, verse 2. The promise being, no matter what you go through, God's promise is, I will be with you. Or Matthew 6, which we just looked at, 25 to 34. Uh, or 1 John 4, 18 to 19. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. So anxiety being a form of fear, what do we meditate on? We meditate upon the love of God. Think about the love of God. Okay, and there are many, many more scriptures that you and I could add to that list. But then remember, well, the slide says respect, but it should say that's actually number three. Okay, it should say remember. Is that what it says in your notes? Yeah. Okay, good. So then just ignore this thing. Um, the, you know, the person who's overcome with anxiety, um, anxiety has a way of, of hampering our memory. Okay? When we become anxious, we forget the past in the sense of the good things. And we are consumed with the moment. And so we need to, my point here is, is in, in, the, in the words of the psalmist, remember the works of the Lord. Or Psalm 103, 2, forget none of his benefits. So recite scriptures that, that bring peace to your heart, but also remember the works of the Lord. Okay, if you just got a tax bill in the mail and you're worried because you have no clue how you're going to come up with that money, stop and look back and remember the works of the Lord. Remember the ways that God has taken care of you, how he has provided for you. One of the things that I do is I keep in the back of my journal, I have a section I call My God Is. And it's just a list. So when I'm doing my Bible reading, I'm finding more and more traits about God. And I'm adding them to that list. So my God is faithful, true. My God is safe. You know, my God is, is love. My God is this. And, and so you open up to that list and you just start meditating on that. That's a way to apply Philippians. Then respect And what I mean by this is respect God's design for the orderliness of life. Uh, What I mean by this is that there's a balance of bodily rest, recreation. I mean, sometimes when we we find ourselves in patterns of anxiety, if we look at our life habits, we look at our sleep habits, we look at our work habits, we look at the fact that maybe we haven't taken a day off in two months, you know, are there just some simple practical things that we have ignored? I mean, God did create the world in an orderly way. and We work six days, we take one off. Um, if we abuse his, his order and design for life, uh, anxiety can certainly uh, be one of the results. I mean, relentless abuse of our minds through an obsession with our work, never resting. There are some providential weights that come into our lives and then they impact us more than than we imagine. For example, um, if you have a special needs child, you have someone in your life who requires a great deal more uh, attention and energy, this is, some, this is one of the things that, that my wife and I just, you know, we, uh, we have 10 children and four of them uh, have hearing impairments. And one of them, one of our youngest four, um, is also cognitively disabled. 
which is what in my, when I was a child, we called that mental retardation. Um, she's 12 years old physically. She's about four and a half mentally. We don't know if she'll ever go beyond four and a half or five mentally. Um, she's, a, she's a beautiful girl. We love her. She's a great joy. She's a lot of work, you know. Uh, she's a lot of work. She's still, you know, she, she doesn't shower herself. She doesn't bathe herself. She still needs help. Certain elements of getting dressed and personal hygiene. I mean, I don't know if she'll ever brush her teeth by herself and do a good job. I mean, we're trying, you know. So w- what I mean is that those things come into your life and you just accept them because the, of the goodness of God. But then sometimes you don't stop long enough to say, to, to, to think that maybe you should back off on something else. You just keep motoring along. And that's kind of what we did. We just kept adding a child at a time, and all of a sudden you got, really? Are these all ours? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? So um, you got to just stop sometimes. That's something I'm not good at at all. Um, so then um, uh, repent. Um, and what I mean by this is, is realizing what we said before, anxiety uh, grows out of unbelief. So when we see that we are not believing something rightly about God, we need to repent of that. We need to confess, God, I have not been believing that you're faithful and true. Forgive me. Turn away from that, okay? And then fill your mind with scripture. I, I write on this in my first book, Um, delight in the word there's a chapter called working through depression and i i show how the psalmist in in a passage in psalm 119 how he worked through depression in in this way and in how he he evaluated his life and god exposed something and he repented of it and how that led to a whole change in his mood because the, the passage starts with him being down in the dust. I mean, depressed as you can possibly believe. And then eight verses later, he is, he's, he's jumping for joy in the Lord. Um, and and kind of walk through, okay, how did he get from down in the dumps to here? Uh, it's, it's something we have to work through. I think those are two important words. So many of these struggles that we have... As much as we want them to just disappear, they're not going to just disappear. They're part of our, our human journey. All right? And so we work through them. Okay? Uh, replace. What I mean here is replace. When God ha- does lead you to repent of something, then replace that with righteousness. So if... if if he led you to repent of false beliefs, then replace that with true beliefs. Or if he did expose sin, sinful life, sinful life choices, sinful behavior, repent of that, but then choose righteousness. Okay? Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, break free from your sin by doing righteousness. And then remain. I mean here, remain in fellowship with God. Abide in, the, abide in Christ, John 15. And then... Um, Oh, there's our remember. Maybe I just had these out of order. I'll just forget this goofy thing. Um, review. Uh, review the truths about God that you know from his word. Put in, in your notes, see Psalms 42 and 43. Sometime this week in your devotions, walk through those Psalms and see how he reviewed what he already knew. And that brought hope. And then the last one, rest. Rest for the body, rest for your mind. We are in a rat race society, okay? And, and sometimes our anxieties are caused by the way we are living. And we need to just stop and back on uh, and, and rest according to God's design, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us today. And we know we just have scratched the surface of um, identifying one of the struggles that I, I would 
safely assume every one of us in this room has from time to time, perhaps some in very little ways, but others in in really strong, um, controlling kind of ways. And so I just pray, help us to uh, apply the biblical truths that we've thought about and to trust that you are good and sovereign and that we can always turn to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.